The following sermon is from the pulpit of Flint River Primitive Baptist Church near Huntsville, Alabama. Visit us online at flintriverpbc.org. Our message is entitled this morning, The Mystery of Godliness, and we direct your attention back to the book of 1 Timothy chapter 3. Just for the sake of the flow of the context, we'll begin our reading in verse 14. These things write I unto thee, hoping to come unto thee shortly. But if I tarry long, that thou mayest know how thou oughtest to behave thyself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen of angels, preached unto the Gentiles, believed on in the world, received up into glory. 1 Timothy 3.16 is one of my favorite passages in Scripture because of the nature of the material that's covered, the subject that's covered in this verse. And if you have been here very long or you know me very well, you know that the subject of Christology, the person and the nature of the Lord Jesus, is one of my favorite subjects to try to speak on anytime I have the opportunity or the excuse to speak on the nature or the person of Christ, I certainly take that opportunity to speak on him. And I believe that's fitting. I believe it's appropriate. I believe that it's even one of the fundamental parts of true church life is to focus on the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Last week we spoke about the church as the pillar and ground of the truth. That is, the church as an institution is to defend and confirm the gospel. We looked at that from the book of Philippians chapter 1. Paul said that he has set for both the defense and the confirmation of the gospel. The gospel as a message is to be defended by the church. That means that we defend it from the onslaughts of false teachers or even unbelievers. It is the responsibility of the church to defend that which is true. And it's also the responsibility of the church to confirm that which is true. We affirm truth. And that's a word that I emphasize and that I use regularly, and I hope that it becomes a part of your vocabulary. What do you affirm about Christ? What do you affirm about salvation? What do you affirm about the church? What do you affirm about man? What do you affirm about the world? Things that we proclaim, that we believe, we affirm certain things. The church is to defend and to confirm that which is true. We protect it against error, and we emphatically declare God's truth publicly in the world. We believe the truth, we defend the truth, we protect the truth. Our message today concerns the truth, the most important truth, the truth that the church upholds that is above and beyond all other truths that we believe and also the foundation of every truth that we hold dear, and that's the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, the identity of Jesus 
of Nazareth. All other truths are built upon this truth. Introducing this subject to you from verse 16 and the first part of this expression, without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. When you and I use the word godly today, we mean as it usually means in Scripture and in the writings of believers, piety or devotion, holiness and uprightness. But when Paul writes about the mystery of godliness in 1 Timothy 3.16, he doesn't have reference to somehow the mystery of why men are godly. He doesn't have reference to personal righteousness. Rather, he has reference not to a concept or an idea. He has reference to a person. He has reference to God incarnate among men, God in the flesh, as follows, God was manifest in the flesh, justified in the Spirit, seen of angels, preached unto the Gentiles, believed on in the world, and received up into glory. When Paul says, without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness, he has reference to the mystery, above all mysteries, that the eternal, omniscient, omnipotent Creator took upon Himself human flesh, was incarnate, walked among us, dwelt among us, lived among us, and experienced everything this world has to offer with one exception, and that is sin, that God himself became a human being for the purpose of redeeming his people. What a mystery is that if you understand what Scripture says about God. He is eternal. He is holy. He is separate from sinners. He has all power in heaven and in earth, and this God, specifically the second person of the Godhead, the Word of God, the Son of God, became flesh for the purpose of dying, dying for His people. It isn't that He laid His divinity aside. He laid His glory aside. As John 17 says, Father, restore unto me the glory which I had with Thee before the world was. He laid His glory aside but he was at all points in his life, Jesus of Nazareth, he was at all points in his life, God, incarnate in human flesh. And we'll say more about this in just a moment. Last week we talked about the church as an institution that defends the truth. It is the pillar and the ground of the truth. No truth is more important to the church than the divinity of the Lord Jesus Christ. And you see how this flows directly into this concept that you might know how to behave yourself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. That is to say the column and the foundation under which the truth is lifted up in the world and without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness, God was manifest in the flesh. This is the truth that the church proclaims. It is an identifying mark of the church. There are many things that we believe that maybe other religions would believe. What separates the church from the nation of Israel in the first century? They believed in Jehovah. They believed in creation. Some of them believed in a resurrection. 
and a judgment. Some of them did not. The Sadducees did not believe in anything that was spiritual, as it were. They didn't believe in angels. They didn't believe in life after death. They didn't believe that we had souls. They didn't, you know, that, that departed to be with God. They didn't believe in the resurrection of the body. The Pharisees did. What separates the Pharisee from the Christian? We find moral teachers in religions around the world who teach things similar to what the Bible teaches about the nature of marriage. What makes them not a church? What sets the church of the Lord Jesus apart from every other institution in the world? You might say discipline. There are groups in the world that maintain discipline, fraternal orders of men that recommend good works. There are even groups today who go by the title Christian who deny this, this fact. What makes them not a church? The central truth of which the church is pillar and ground is the divinity of the Lord Jesus. This is the question of all questions. It is the most important question that has ever been asked by the tongues of men. It is the most important question that has been asked in human history. And I trust that you believe that because you're here today. Why don't you fear death? Jesus. Understanding there is a God, as many people in the world understand there is a God, why do you not fear judgment at death? Jesus. He's the answer to the question. He is the reason. He is why. The great philosophical question, what is the meaning of this life, the purpose of this life? It's all found. The answer is found in the Lord Jesus Christ. In the book of Matthew chapter 16, Jesus was speaking with his disciples. And we're going to give you more scripture today than we generally do. Because I want you to see as the pillar and ground of the truth, this is a, the general theme and fabric of scripture the teachings of the apostles, the teachings of the evangelists, the, the men who were with the apostles like Luke or Mark, the teaching of the original twelve, the teaching of Paul who came in later, it is the theme of New Testament Christianity. When Jesus came into the coast of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Whom do men say that I the Son of Man am? The most important question that has ever been asked. They said, some say that thou art John the Baptist. John the Baptist at this point in history had been beheaded. And some believed that Jesus was John the Baptist. Understand that not everyone had seen John the Baptist. And not everyone knew the identity of Jesus. He travels around all of these cities, all of these villages, preaching and teaching and doing miracles. And his disciples are baptizing people. And they begin to follow him as they did John the Baptist. And some people thought that Jesus was Another version of John the Baptist. John is either resurrected or maybe they didn't know he was dead. Some say Elias, which is Elijah. Some think you're Elijah the prophet. Come back again. Remember that Elijah didn't die. He was taken up in a chariot of fire. And prophetically, Scripture says that before the Messiah would come, that God would send Elijah. And we know that Elijah in the sense that Scripture meant it, was John the Baptist. John the Baptist was the Elijah who should come. He came in the spirit and power of Elijah. Some say you're Jeremiah. Or one of the prophets, a resurrected prophet. There was something different about Jesus. Think about this. We, we all know of men who 
have lived in history who, in our mind, have become characteristic of almost myth and legend, right? If, if you think back at even in our country, the founders of our nation, think about George Washington. What do you think of George Washington? When you think of George Washington, don't you think of a man above all the other men that you know? How about Abraham Lincoln? How about Thomas Jefferson, Andrew Jackson? These, these men who we look at as pivotal figures, men that had great, great followings. This past week, our country remembered D-Day, and we, many of us read and listened to and studied men such as Eisenhower, men who led with great courage. They seem to be head and shoulders above the rest of our peers, don't they? And so these Jews in the first century, they say, this, this Jesus, he's got to be one of these epic, legendary characters, one of the prophets, one of these old, legendary prophets that we have heard about come again. I like to point out whenever we're in this passage, it's one thing to say what others believe, it's another thing to say what you believe. And this is why that word affirm is so important to our vocabulary. What do you affirm? What do you believe about Jesus? What do you believe about any subject that is in the Word of God? Jesus looks at them and he says, But whom say ye that I am? Who do you say that I am? As we speak about this as the most important question, we're going to look at some of the reasons why in just a moment. But let this question linger in your mind. Who do you say that Jesus of Nazareth is? Simon Peter answers and says, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. You're the Messiah. You're the anointed. You're the one that throughout the history of Israel they're looking for as God, as early as the Garden of Eden begins to promise that a Messiah would come into the world to crush the head of Satan and to redeem God's people. God himself said in the garden that the seed of the woman would bear seed. And if you know anything about the genealogies of the nation of Israel, the seed is never carried through the woman. It's always carried through the man, the son of, the son of, the son of, the daughter of, the son of. But it's always the son or the daughter of a specific man. And yet this is the seed of the woman. Speaking of the virgin birth, thousands of years before Christ would come into the world, directly after the fall of Adam. And he says that the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent, would defeat Satan. God is preaching his own gospel in the Garden of Eden. You see the foreshadowings of this in Jacob's ladder, angels ascending and descending into heaven. The only way to heaven is Jesus. Jesus took that title upon himself. You see the prophecy that Jacob gave on his deathbed that the scepter shall not depart from Judah until Shiloh come. Judah was the last remaining tribe that had any sort of their own sovereignty and autonomy as a nation. Geographically, it was the last little portion that they, they claimed, that little pocket of land around Jerusalem. Moses spoke about Jesus, the prophet that should come, that the people will gather unto. Over and over, you have prophecy after prophecy after prophecy of Christ. 
the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed. The word Christ in the New Testament is the same as the word anointed in the Old Testament. Learn that. In the Old Testament, when you read about one who would come that is anointed, you're many times reading about the Christ. It was promised that David's son would be the anointed. And so, understanding that, the children of Israel knew that the Messiah would come in the lineage of King David. And as you know, Jesus, both through Mary, that is to say biologically, because he was the offspring of Mary, but also adoptedly through his adopted father, Joseph, Jesus had the right to the throne of David through two different sons of David. Simon Peter says, Thou art the Christ. But notice what he continues with. The Son of the living God. I want you to understand the implications of Jesus being the Son of God. Now, as we consider the Sonship of Christ, I want to add a descriptive term to that. Jesus is the eternal Son of God. The eternal Son of God. Now, this is a mystery. And that's why when Paul writes about it, he doesn't say, oh, the divinity of Christ. That's an easy subject to understand. Everyone can grasp it. You all ought to believe it, but that doesn't mean you can grasp it. It's a mystery. What is a mystery? Something that is veiled, something that we can't grasp. There are several mysteries that are contained in the Word of God that are called such in the New Testament. Some of them hid from the foundation of the world. The Son of God. When Jesus spoke about himself being the Son of God, anyone in his audience understood, if they were Jewish, that that implies his divinity. For example of this, in the book of John, chapter 10, Jesus said, I and my Father are one. How did the Jews react to that? Verse 31, the Jews took up stones again to stone him. I and my Father are one. To say that he is the Son of God communicates his divinity to his hearers. Jesus answered, Many good works have I showed you from my Father. For which of these works do you stone me? The Jews answered him, saying, For a good work we stone thee not, but for blasphemy. Why? Because that thou, being a man, makest thyself equal with God. Makest thyself God. Thou being man, maketh thyself God. They understood that the title, Son of God, communicates divinity. Now, as we think about Jesus as the Son of God, the theological phrase of antiquity is that he is eternally begotten of the Father. In other words, God the Father has always been God the Father. God the Son has always been God the Son. There wasn't a time in eternity past where God created the Son. There wasn't a time in eternity past where God had his Son. But God the Son is eternally God the Son. God the Father is eternally God the Father. Now, creedal language says that the Son proceeds forth from the Father and the Holy Spirit proceeds forth from the Son and the Father. And there are verses that speak to that end. But however you understand the framework of Father, Son, and Spirit, understand they exist this way for eternity. There are some that would deny the eternal sonship but say that Jesus existed for eternity as the Word of God. And then the question that I always ask is, what then do you call God the Father for eternity? 
if God the Son wasn't always God the Son? And the answer to that is there is not an answer to that. They have no answer to that. The unidentified first person of the Godhead. Doesn't that sound silly and foolish? No, but I read in Galatians 4 that when the fullness of the time was come, God sent His Son. Unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. God gave His Son, His only begotten Son. Jesus is the Son of God for eternity. Eternally generated is the theological term, the eternal generation of Christ, that He is always the Son and God the Father is always the Father. God the Spirit is always the Spirit. I am the Lord, I change not. Therefore, you sons of Jacob are not consumed. If God exists as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit today, God existed as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit for all of eternity. Some of the most interesting statements in the Word of God pertain to the divinity of Christ and His relationship with the Father. The Father always heard Him. Jesus would pray to the Father and and say that, I know you always hear me. In Matthew chapter 11, we read that no one knows the Father except for those that the Son reveals the Father unto. And no man knows the Son except those that the Father has revealed the Son unto. Matthew eleven twenty five. At that time, Jesus answered and said, I thank thee, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because thou hast hid these things from the wise and prudent and hast revealed them unto babes. Even so, Father, for it seemed good in thy sight. All things are delivered unto me of my Father. Listen, and no man knoweth the Son but the Father. Neither knoweth any man the Father save the Son, and he to whomsoever the Son will reveal him. Jesus said in John 14, No man goes to the Father except by the Son. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. But in John chapter 6, Jesus said, No man cometh unto me except he is drawn by the Father. They're inseparable in Scripture. Father and Son. Two of the three persons of the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Co-equal, co-eternal, Father, Son, and Spirit. When Jesus said, I am the way to the Father, Thomas says, or when he says, I go to the Father, and you'll come with me. The way you know, and where I go, you know, Thomas says, we, we don't know. We don't know how, you, how we go there. And, and Jesus said, I am the way. And then Thomas, he says, Lord, show us the Father, and it sufficeth us. John fourteen nine. Have I been so long with you, and yet thou hast not known me, Philip? Thomas says one thing, Philip says another. Philip says, show us the Father. He that hath seen me hath seen the Father. How sayest thou then, show us the Father? Believeth not that I am in the Father, and the Father in me? This isn't to say that Jesus is the Father. It's to say that they're both persons in the Godhead. The Father is in the Son. The Son is in the Father. He and His Father are one. And yet at the same time, they are three. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. First John 5, 7. The three that bear record in heaven. 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and chapter 2. Both of these chapters contain a, a statement concerning Paul's devotion to this truth. As the, the truth above all truth, 
the fact that matters more than any other fact that we believe, the foundational truth. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2, verse 1, And I, brethren, when I came to you, came not with excellency of speech or wisdom, declaring unto you the testimony of God. The word wisdom there likely has reference to the Greek philosophies of the day, the philosophies of Plato and Aristotle, the philosophies of the Epicureans and the Stoics, all of these various philosophers. He says, I didn't just come with another philosophy. And I didn't come with excellency of speech. I'm not a showman. I don't stand up and give speeches to build a faction after myself. But I declared unto you the testimony of God, for I determined not to know anything among you, save Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Does this mean that the only subject Paul ever preached was Christology? No, it means that the root, the heart of every message he ever delivered was the identity, the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. In everything, in everything, Christ is the heart. If we preach about marriage, we, we love our wives as Christ loved the church. If we speak about being a wife, we talk about submitting to your husband as unto the Lord. If we talk about being a good employee, it's servants serve your masters as unto the Lord. If we're talking to masters, it's masters. Remember, you have a Lord, which is the Lord Jesus Christ. All of the ethics, all of the morality, everything that we believe and that we practice and that we do in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ is built upon the identity, the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is the central truth. It is the thing that sets us apart from any other order of men, any other religion, any other fraternity. Christ Jesus, what do you say about Christ Jesus? I determined not to know anything among you save Jesus Christ and Him crucified. In 1 Corinthians 3, Paul said, For other foundation can no man lay then that is laid, which is Jesus Christ. He has reference to the church at Corinth here, and he's speaking about the founding of the church at Corinth. Paul was, as it were, the wise master builder who laid the foundation. He was the founding pastor of this church. He labored there for a year and a half. He went into Corinth. He converted people to the truth through the preaching of the Word. And we know that as he went there, God says, I have much people in this city. He already had people in that city, but Paul converted them in preaching. And he planted this church there, and he labored there for a year and a half. He laid the foundation, and the foundation of this church at Corinth was no other foundation than Jesus Christ. Concerning our experience, how crucial is this? 1 John 5, 1 says, Whosoever believeth that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. How do I know that I'm a saved person? Do you believe in Jesus? Yes, I believe in Jesus. Then you know you're a saved person. Because an, an unsaved man cannot and will not believe. Whosoever believeth is born of God. And if you follow the language there, the belief leads, excuse me, the birth leads to the belief. We believe according to the working of His mighty power, which He wrought in Christ Jesus when He raised Him from the dead, in Ephesians 1, 19 and 20. 
Why do you believe? Because Jesus Christ has raised your dead soul from death and sin to life in Christ. And when you say, I believe, you are testifying to the fact that you are a saved individual. Because a natural man receives not the things of the Spirit of God. The gospel is but foolishness unto an unsaved man, according to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. The preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness, but unto us which are saved, it is the power of God. It is birth and then believe. And if you believe, it is because you have experienced the birth, the new birth, being born from above, being quickened, being saved, being regenerated, being translated into the kingdom of his dear son. Salvation is promised by way of assurance to those who believe. You have assurance of salvation when you believe. We don't preach enough on assurance anymore. It's a Bible concept. Justification by faith is all about the assurance of salvation in your conscience. And it's justification by faith. The declaration of righteousness on your conscience by what? Faith. Say that sentence in your mind or that phrase in your mind and emphasize justification. Justification by faith. And then say it again in your mind and emphasize the word faith. Justification by faith. You're declared righteous in your conscience. You feel the reality of your deliverance when you believe. Jesus emphatically declares it in John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Directly before that, Jesus spoke on birth. Before he spoke on belief, because this is fitting. Marvel not that I say unto thee, you must be born again. The wind bloweth where it listeth, and thou hearest the sound thereof, but canst not tell whence it cometh and whither it goeth, so is every one that is born of the Spirit. You're born, which leads to, which sparks the belief. And then when we believe, the Word of God assures us, the Holy Spirit assures us, that when we die, we'll be with God in glory. We shall not come into condemnation. John 5, 24 uses that language. Verily, verily, I say unto you, He that heareth my word and believeth on him that sent me hath everlasting life and shall not come into condemnation, but what? Is passed from death unto life. How did they pass from death unto life? We're not talking about physical death and physical life. We're talking about spiritual death and spiritual life. Verily, verily, I say unto you, the hour is coming and now is when the dead shall hear the voice of the Son of God and they that hear shall live. Jesus Christ speaks to your dead soul, live, and you're quickened when you were dead in trespasses and in sin. And it sparks this intimate heart knowledge of God from that moment on. There is faith in you, Christ in you, the hope of glory. And as you... By faith, receive the message, you experience the reality of your deliverance. And again, why? Well, because you're passed from death unto life. Scripture assures you, the Holy Spirit assures you. As we think about the importance of this question, listen to me. This is the question we ask when someone requests baptism. Every time, without exception. I encourage people to give their experience of grace when they unite with the church. 
We used to hear that a lot when I was young, before my generation. Tell us what God has done for your life. Tell us what God has done in your heart. Tell us what you think about Jesus. Tell us that bare minimum, I am a great sinner and He is a great Savior. I love it when people come forward and they join the church with tears. And we've seen that many times here because it tells me that they're moved by what they have experienced. And you know that God is in this. In the book of Acts chapter 8, there was an Ethiopian eunuch that Philip preached to. Different Philip than we referenced just a moment ago. The Holy Spirit leads Philip, the evangelist, to this Ethiopian eunuch. The eunuch is reading from Isaiah 53, which is about which is about who? Which is about Christ. The place that he read was, He is led as a lamb to the slaughter, like a lamb dumb before a shearer. He opened not his mouth, and his humiliation, his judgment was taken away. And who shall declare his generation? For his life is taken from the earth. The eunuch answered Philip, He said, I pray thee, of whom speaketh the prophet this, of himself or some other man? Philip opened his mouth and began at the same scripture and preached unto him, Jesus. You know, there are many preachers in the world that preach things like social justice, that preach things like politics, that preach things like agendas, that preach things like simple morality, that preach things like prosperity. You find a man that preaches Jesus. And you found a true preacher of the gospel. Philip preached Jesus. And as they went on their way, they came to a certain water, and the eunuch said, See, here is water. What doth hinder me to be baptized? Which tells you that there was so much more in the conversation that we didn't get to hear. Don't you wish you had all the conversations in the Word of God? In their completeness, not the summarized versions. I think maybe the first thousand years in heaven will... We'll get the rest of the story, as Paul Harvey used to say, and now you know the rest of the story. Alleged, apparently, at some point in the conversation, baptism was mentioned, and the eunuch sees water, and he says, What hinders me to be baptized? What does Philip say? If thou believest with all thine heart, thou mayest. And the eunuch says, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Again, that title is divine. I believe that Jesus is the Son of God. He commanded the chariot to stand still. They both went down into the water, both Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him, which tells us that the baptism was by immersion because if it merely took pouring, if it merely took sprinkling, they wouldn't go down into the water together. And I'm like Philip. I know that in our modern day, and there have been times past in church history where you had to use the smaller baptistries where the preacher stood on the outside of the baptistry, but brother, I'm going into the water. I'm going into the water. I'm getting in the water because Philip got in the water. I'm going to go into the water with the person that I baptize. They both go down into the water and Philip baptized him. And when they were come up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord called away Philip, that the eunuch saw him no more, and he went on his way rejoicing. Philip was found at several other places preaching the Word of God. Who is Jesus? It's the most important question that has ever been asked. And you see it all through Scripture. Jesus has searched the Scriptures, referencing the Old Testament. For in them you think you have eternal life, 
They are they which testify of me. This is the central truth of which the church is the pillar and ground. Let's go back to our text. Without controversy. Without controversy. I love 40-minute prefaces, don't you? Without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. I want to speak briefly on this phrase. As we consider the mystery of godliness, that is to say, God was manifest in the flesh, holiness personified, God incarnate. This is a matter that is, quote, without controversy. If you know anything about church history, this ought to be an ironic statement to you now. Without controversy? You see, some of the earliest controversies in church history were over the divinity, the nature of Christ. There has been more controversy about the nature of Christ, the person of Christ, the identity of Christ in church history than perhaps any other subject. Without controversy, without controversy, great is the mystery. Without controversy, how hard it is to understand the divinity of Christ. But there's another meaning to this that I want to share with you in a minute. But as we think about the lack of controversy on this subject, think about all of the controversy over this Subject in church history. To the true church, this is not controversial. It's a point that needs to be made. To the church that is pillar and ground of the truth, this is never controversial. Early in church history, you had the Gnostics. Before them, you had the proto-Gnostics, early pre-Gnostic Gnostics. You had Gnosticism that denied the divinity of Christ. You had Arians that denied the divinity of Christ. You had Sabellians. You had modalists. All denying certain aspects of Jesus' divinity and his nature. In modern times, you have Jehovah's Witnesses that deny the divinity of Christ. One of the things I look forward to the most in my life is to get that knock on the door. It's like a kid at Christmas. You're on my porch. And when that happens, they cannot escape quick enough. I've told you the story before, and I pinned it down at the time. It was once a group of, of ladies who came knocking, and I had just gotten home from church. It was April, it was right before Easter. And I see them on the porch, and I, I know who they are, and I know what they're doing. I went straight to the issue. What do you believe about Jesus? Do you believe that Jesus is divine? No, we don't believe that. I'm sure I look crazy. It ends with them walking up the road and me following them, continuing to preach to them. They thought, this man is a lunatic. Look, never show up at an old Baptist preacher's house 30 minutes after he got out of the pulpit with a heresy. That is the wrong time. 
Others that would deny the eternal divinity of the Lord Jesus Christ in our present day are Mormons. This is not without controversy today. This word without controversy, these words without controversy, and, and again, some of the lack of controversy involves this mystery that God was incarnate with us. But this word, or these words without controversy, also mean confessedly. Confessedly. That which is confessed, that which is professed, that which is affirmed, which may imply, and in fact it's believed that it does teach, that this was an early creed or hymn that was utilized by the church in that day. And so when Paul says without controversy, he says confessedly, and then he begins into this language that is written in hymn format, great is the mystery of godliness, God was manifest in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen of angels, preached unto the Gentiles, believed on in the world, received up into glory. Did you catch the cadence in that language? And it's not even in the same language. It's not even in the original Greek, but it even carries a cadence in English. It's believed that this was either an early creed, and creeds were used early in the church, not as the, the confessions that they grew into throughout 2,000 years of church history, but they were used to catechize or to teach new members. I've studied many of the ancient creeds. We're all familiar with the Apostles' Creed, but that came from one that was an older Roman creed. And when I say Roman, I mean first two centuries Roman, believers in Rome, and it simply affirms the, the personhood and the divinity of Christ Jesus. And they would teach that. And in church history, there were even eras when they would have those at their baptism who were baptized recite that, what they believe about the Lord Jesus. And they were very simple and they were very short, but it was common for them because they didn't have this as we have it. They would, they would write these short little sayings many times in hymn format because we can all remember a hymn. And they would teach them to the church, to the disciples, to the converts, and they would be able to repeat these things. How many children here... How many children here could quote many of the lyrics of hymns that we sing? Why is that? Because it's put to music. It's put to cadence. It's put to a structure that's easy for our minds to remember. How much easier is it to remember a song that you hear on the radio than it is to remember something that you read in a book or that you read in the newspaper this morning? And so it's believed that this is an early either creed or hymn that the church simply knew. Everyone knew it. Another thing about the confessedly, without controversy, this is something that everyone was familiar with. Not only the concept, but the verbiage of this statement. Without controversy, confessedly, everyone knows, everyone is familiar with the fact that God was manifest in the flesh, justified in the Spirit, seen of angels, preached unto the Gentiles, believed on in the world, and received up into glory. This indicates strong familiarity. And regardless of hymn or creed or anything else, this is something that early believers confessed. 
They affirmed it. They proclaimed it. They confirmed it. And they defended it as what? As a pillar and ground of the truth. This is the truth above all truths that we defend. Let's begin looking at these six items. God was manifest in the flesh. Now, the majority of texts say theos, God, was manifest in the flesh. The minority text, the critical text, the texts that disagree with themselves in thousands and thousands and thousands of places don't say theos, they say has, which is the word for who or what or which. And so in more modern translations of the Bible into English that come from the critical text, they translate that he, which is actually a mistranslation. It doesn't say he. It doesn't say he. It says what or which in their critical text. And the problem with that is that it, the reason that we know that that's not right, other than ancient quotations of this from church fathers and lectionaries and all kinds of other resources, other translations that existed all through history, is that it creates a grammatical problem where you have a pronoun with no antecedent. Pronouns have antecedents in grammar. If you talk about that or this or he or she, at some point in the conversation, you've given the proper name or the object or the item that you then describe in pronoun form. It's not even good grammar. Without a doubt, this should be theos, God was manifest in the flesh. I could say a whole lot about the superiority of the ecclesiastical text, but another subject for another day. God was manifest in the flesh. The Word was made flesh, dwelt among us. The same was in the beginning. He was in the beginning with God. He was God, and yet He was in the beginning with God, Father, Son, and Spirit. The Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. We beheld His glory. He was justified in the Spirit. Now, I'm going to give you a lot of Scripture. And I'm going to give you a lot of Scripture. I'm not going to read you a lot of Scripture for the sake of time. The word justify here doesn't mean what we commonly understand it to mean today, and I would say misunderstand it to mean, to make one righteous. When you hear the word justify in theology, many times people think, well, that's to make one righteous. But that is not the case. To justify is to declare one righteous, or, as it is used here, to vindicate. If you say a police officer was justified in taking the action that he took, what does that mean? It means he's vindicated. We all, in American history, talk about the, the concept of a just war, root there, just war, just is the root of justified. Again, D-Day was this past week, and people would argue that that was a just cause. It was a just war. That means that we're vindicated in our actions. Jesus was justified in the Spirit. That doesn't mean He was declared righteous in the Spirit. It means that He was vindicated by the Spirit of God. He was authenticated. He was declared by the Holy Spirit to be exactly who Jesus claimed to be, the Son of God, divinity, divine, one with the Father. How was Jesus justified in the Spirit? I'll give you three ways. 
First of all, in Matthew 3.16, if you want an interesting study, look at all the 3.16s of the New Testament. You'll find some interesting coincidences that 3.16 carries such weight throughout the New Testament. But in Matthew 3.16, Jesus is baptized. The Father speaks from heaven, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. As the Son is baptized, and the Spirit descended on Him in the form of a dove. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit at the baptism of Jesus. The Spirit descended on Him in the form of a dove. The Spirit vindicates Him, declares Him, authenticates Him. Secondly, by the miracles that Jesus did through the Spirit, He was declared to be who He said He was. In the book of John chapter 10, when the unbelieving Jews that were not of His sheep come to Jesus, they say, How long dost thou make us to doubt? If if thou be the Christ, tell us plainly. And Jesus said, I told you. The works that I do in my Father's name, they bear witness of me. But you believe not because you're not of my sheep. As I said unto you, my sheep hear my voice. I know them. They follow me. I give unto them eternal life. And they shall never perish. The works that Jesus did vindicated him. How did he do them? Through the Holy Spirit. Third, by the resurrection. As he is raised from the dead... He is declared to be the Son of God with power according to the Spirit of holiness by the resurrection, according to Romans chapter 1 and verse 4. Justified, vindicated by the Spirit as the Spirit descended on Him like a dove, as Jesus did miracles by the Spirit and as He was raised from the dead. But the language continues. He was seen of angels. This is a sermon in and of itself. I believe the primary focus of this language, because the subject matter is the incarnation and the humanity of Christ, at the same time being divine, the divinity of Christ, we refer to the combination, the the humanity and the divinity of Christ being together in one person as the hypostatic union. Given that the incarnation is what is being discussed... More than likely, the primary focus of seeing of angels is that of his birth. In Luke chapter 2 and verse 13, the shepherds look and they behold multitudes of the heavenly hosts, the angels of God, appear in Jerusalem and they worship the babe in the manger that is Christ Jesus. All the angels of glory appear in heaven. Worshipping Christ. He was seen of angels. But many times Jesus interacted with angels in his life. In Matthew 4.11, as Jesus was being tempted of Satan in the, garden of Gis- in, the, in the wilderness, as he fasted 40 days, Jesus defeats Satan by quoting Scripture unto him and resisting him. And as Satan departs, angels appeared and ministered unto him in the wilderness. Before the cross, the night before the crucifixion in the Garden of Gethsemane, as Jesus prayed three times, another occurrence of Jesus being tempted in a wave of three. As Jesus says, not my will, but thy will be done, O Father. As that temptation had ended, as Jesus said, I will do what you've sent me into the world to do, because he was always obedient. He was always obedient. Angels appeared and ministered unto him. It was angels that announced his resurrection as the women came to the tomb. Why seek ye the living among the dead? 
It was angels that told the apostles in Acts chapter 1, Why stand ye gazing into heaven? The same Jesus that you've seen ascend to heaven shall descend from heaven in like manner. He was seen of angels. He was preached unto the Gentiles, and we know that Jesus has been preached unto the Gentiles since the ministry of the Apostle Paul, the first Gentile convert being a man that was baptized of Peter named Cornelius in Acts chapter 10. But again, our subject matter is not what happened in church history from the ministry of Paul to our present day. I'm looking at a room of Gentiles unto whom Christ is being preached. But we're talking about during the life of Christ. When was Christ preached unto the Gentiles in the life of Christ, in the incarnation? Two examples. The Syrophoenician woman. She came asking Jesus for a miracle. And Jesus said, it is not proper... It is not meet to give things that are holy unto dogs. And he did this to test her faith because Gentiles were considered dogs to the Jews. And she says, Yea, Lord, but do not the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from the master's table? I'll own the title and I'm not worthy. And Jesus said, How great faith. And he granted her that which she asked. Another example is a centurion in Matthew chapter 8 who had a sick servant and he comes to Jesus and he says, Lord, heal this sick servant. And Jesus engages, he says, let's go, I'll go heal him. And this man says, Lord, I'm a sinful man. I'm not worthy that you should come into my roof, under my roof, into my home. But if you merely speak the words, my servant will be healed. And Jesus said, I've not found so great faith in all of Israel. And he heals the man's servant. Jesus was preached unto Gentiles. John Gill points out that at this point in history, Gentiles were the most vile people on the face of the earth. In their religion, in their culture, in their ways. We're not so different today as wickedness As the other mystery, the mystery of iniquity does work in our land. Jesus was preached unto the Gentiles, even in his incarnation. He was believed on in the world. How many men believed? Hundreds and hundreds. There were 120 gathered on the day of Pentecost. There would be thousands converted after that. But Paul says that the resurrected Christ was seen by over 500 brethren in 1 Corinthians 15. He was believed on in the world. Understand the miracle that is in that. And finally, he was received up into glory. In Acts chapter 1, we read about the ascension of the Lord Jesus. He said that we will be preachers, witnesses unto him both in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and under the uttermost parts of the earth. And here we are affirming and defending as the pillar and ground of the truth, the divinity of Christ even today. And when he had spoken these things while they beheld, he was taken up and a cloud received him out of their sight. While they looked steadfastly towards heaven as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel, which also said, Ye men of Galilee, why stand ye gazing up into heaven? The same Jesus, which is taken up from you into heaven, shall so come in like manner as you have seen him go into heaven. 
He was received up into glory, where he is seated at the right hand of the majesty on high, ruling and reigning. The earth is his footstool, till he crush all enemies under his feet, as he delivers up his kingdom unto his Father in his second coming. Without controversy, confessedly, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh.